Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Wendell Cole, and I also have my co-host, who is Dr. Jamal Fitz, or Dr. J. Fitz, and we host this Nailed It Ortho podcast where we try to cover common orthopedic topics and cover it to the point where if you see it in your clinic, you know how to manage this, and also if you're taking board exams and you see a question, you know how to answer the question. And today we have an excellent talk in store for you guys. We have Dr. Uh, Amit Mamaya, who is a sports-trained orthopedic surgeon. He did his residency at the University of uh, Alabama in Birmingham School of Medicine. He did his um, fellowship at the Stedman Hawkins Clinic of the Carolinas in Sports, now he is still on uh, staff over in Alabama. And today we talk about anterior shoulder instability. Really get into it. And it is really a, uh, a good talk. I listened to it a couple of times. And uh, he goes over a lot of jewels. He does the physical examinations very well. So without further ado, enjoy this episode about anterior shoulder instability. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Mile, welcome so much to the podcast. Um, thank you for coming on and being a guest and uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. No, no, we, uh, we've been looking forward to this talk, um, you know, ever since we kind of touched base on this. And uh, it, it seems to be like sports is, uh, is one of our, um, is one of our, uh, seems to do well as far as podcast episodes. So I'm hoping this episode does uh, pretty well as well. And, you know, we're glad to, again, have you on. Good, good to hear. Yeah, sports is a, uh, it's a challenging field and it's a growing field, so. I'm glad I'm, I'm glad your sports topics are getting big time hits. Yeah, they yeah. really do. I mean, ever since we first put it on, it just seemed to, I don't know. I don't know where the people come from, but they just, they, they, they <laughs> find the episode and they hang on tight. They uh, email us, they drop notes. It's, it's, uh, it's very good for us. So I'm really glad to have you. Good, good. And um, we kind of just like to start off getting to know you. We'll just ask a couple of general questions and then go into the topic of the day. Um, so just doing some research on you, it looks like you're a team doc for, um, some of the teams over there in, uh, Birmingham. Um, so the question I had is what's it, what's it actually like, uh, being a sports med doc for a team? Yeah, good question. I mean, uh, I, I enjoy it thoroughly. You know, that's part of the reason why I went to sports medicine is to have that, is to have that rapport and relationship with the team, being part of a team. A lot of us grew up playing sports in our youth and it's, it's a different uh, side of the sideline that you're on when you're taking care of a team, but, um, it's busy, uh, no doubt about it. You have to have a family that supports it. Um, you know, the team often looks, looks towards your, uh, expertise for their care for getting athletes safely back on the field, uh, treating athletes, not only during the season, but off season and keeping them healthy. And you gotta, gotta be on call all the time. You never know what's going on. And you gotta keep your cell phone on, um, because people get injured at all times of the day. Is it, is, it, is it just like how you thought it would be? You know, a lot of people come into residency like, oh, I want to do sports. And then seeing that you've done it, is it kind of like how you always envisioned it? You know, it's, it's a little bit different than probably how envisioned it. I think people, when they're going through med school or residency, kind of envision it as a glamorous job. 
And let's be honest, there's, there's not too much glamour about it. I think you have to really love and be passionate about sports pathology and taking care of athletes because all in all, it, it's a, it's a, it's a tiring job. It's a lot of hours spent. You know, I take care of college football and that does involve traveling with the team. And so a lot of times you're leaving your family on Friday morning for a Saturday evening game sometimes, and you're spending a lot of time traveling via bus or plane and sitting in a hotel room the rest of the Friday and good part of Saturday. So you got to be, you got to be efficient. You got to be, you got to make sure you carry your work with you and being able to multitask on the road. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like, you know, kind of what Cody was saying, you know, a lot of people come into residency or even med school sometimes, and they already know that's exactly what they want to do. They want to be a sports doctor and that's just kind of how things go. So for you, was there another subspecialty that you almost considered going into or was it always sports and sports only? Yeah, that's, you know, sports is what actually got me interested in orthopedics. So I was pretty heavily biased and leaning towards sports when I was, when I was going through medical school and everyone tells to keep an open mind. Um, but I was, I was pretty dedicated to sports medicine. It was kind of which route I was going to get to sports medicine. Was that through orthopedics or was that through non-operative care, such as family medicine or pediatrics and doing a fellowship in sports medicine? That was more what I was focused on. And I felt the orthopedics provided the the opportunity to fully care for the patient from all the non-operative things that may happen to the surgical side of things and follow them through their post-op rehab. So um, I was, I was pretty dedicated to sports medicine from an early time. And that's probably what led me to orthopedics in the first place. And you yeah, know, I just hear that story so often, you know, I feel like, you know, uh, it was a probably a certain percentage of people that I met that was going into orthopedics. There's always something like that. Like, yeah, you know, I was playing sports and I injured my knee and I just love my doctor. And, you know, it just kind of kept, <laughs> it just kept going like that. So uh, I think that's it's, it's kind of neat to go in knowing what you're pretty interested in versus like me. And I'm just kind of wide open. And every day I, I switch to not knowing what, what subspecialty I want to go into. So that has to be yeah. kind of good going in. Next thing you know, Dr. Fisk going going into OBGYN. I'll say, what well, what happened here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things get a little confusing sometimes. Things get but the greatest confused. the great thing about orthopedics is I think, you know, the principles are still there in all our specialties, uh, the general principles of biomechanics. And uh, it's it's great that within orthopedics we have so many great specialties of being able to handle a lot of uh, variety in musculoskeletal care and and our profession has advanced so much over the years that there is a need for subspecialty because I don't think uh, the way that people could practice general orthopedics, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that that's kind of gone by the wayside nowadays. And most people do specialize and get really good at their mm -hmm. kind of profession and calling and, uh, and provide excellent care to patients. Right. Yeah. And um, I think that's a, a good way to go ahead and get into the topic of today, uh, which we're going to talk about some anterior glenohumeral shoulder instability. So we kind of have a case, um, that we came up with and that we'd like to start with, and then we can kind of just go from there. So, you know, say a 22-year-old male semi-professional baseball player comes in with anterior shoulder pain. Um, he states in the past, you know, he felt like his shoulder has popped out of his, um, popped out of the socket before, and he just has some just generalized shoulder pain. Kind of where do we where do we go from here? Like how do we evaluate these patients, and what are like 
what are some clues that we should be on the lookout for? Sure. First thing you want to do is kind of like you said, is get a history about this, this may be popping out in the past. Did this require actual reduction? Was this a true dislocation? What they felt like was a popping out or was it a subluxation event or was it something uh, altogether, something different when they present to you, you want to see what their primary complaint is. Um, in the case you mentioned, it seems like pain seems to be their primary complaint. So you do want to, you do want to hone in on, is it pain because of some subtle instability? Is it pure instability that they're describing as pain or is it truly just isolated pain? Um, so that's some kind of what you want to take on the history. And while you're taking the history, you also want to see kind of what, what their demands are and what, what their plan for their future is. Is this someone who's going to be playing baseball uh, long-term or trying to continue their career? Is this someone who's in their final year of baseball? And because the demand and age play an important role in how you may address shoulder potential shoulder instability. So that's starting, starting with the history of kind of what I would do is just kind of go over their demands, go over what, what exactly happened on the event um, and go over what their primary complaint is. Um, right now is it is it instability is it pain or is it both do do many of these patients like tell you when my arms in this specific like position or when I'm doing this type of emotion that you know my shoulder feels like or painful or it feels like it's about to pop out is that something that is common yeah you know you'll be surprised actually um, at how many patients can actually once you feel uh, an event of shoulder instability in your shoulder you kind of you kind of know it you kind of have that feeling and patients are actually very good at telling you the diagnosis. They, they will come in and say, doc, my shoulder feels like it may pop out if I do this too much. Um, and they're pretty, they're pretty good about it. Sometimes they do kind of point more towards pain mm -hmm. and then you get into it a little bit more and figure out shoulder instability. But a lot of times they'll actually tell you straight up that my shoulder, my shoulder feels like it's going to pop out when I do this, or it doesn't feel tight enough. Um, so it's, it's one of those unique feelings that once a patient has it, they, they know what it is. Yeah. And do you ever get patients that say that like they can just voluntarily like pop their shoulder out? They're like, Oh, I can just voluntarily, you know, do it on my own. You know, is that yeah. Um, it's, you know, people with severe multi-directional instability oftentimes present in that way. Sometimes if they have significant bone loss and it comes out in and out also, but most commonly it's the multi-directional instability that feels like they can pop it out, pop back in. And those are, those are patients you got to watch out for. If it's not a unidirectional uh, instability event that they can do voluntarily. We call it a kind of a party trick shoulder. Those are ones to worry, uh, watch out for because oftentimes surgical management of those isn't the, isn't the best or doesn't work as well because the capsule tends to stretch back out and these patients often are able to uh, often fail uh, surgical treatment and will stretch back out. And just, just because you mentioned it already, uh, just actually notice finding out what the person's uh, expectations are as far as what they're planning on doing. So in our, in our, our, uh, pretty much the story that we gave was a 22 year old semi-professional. And, uh, I was thinking about it when we was writing it down and I figured I'll just go ahead and mention it now. You know, once we, you know, when you're doing questions, the, the semi-professional or professional athlete, it's like a, it's a, um, you know, a dead giveaway that they want you to do something a little bit more aggressive versus doing all the, um, exactly, you know, all the non-op stuff, but right, in, re right. in real life, you know, you, you picked on that right off the back. You have to actually determine what are their expectations and what they plan on doing next. Are they trying to get back out there to, to the field? 
uh, as yeah. soon as possible and things like that. And I think that's really important in this, uh, you know, in the sports field. But heading, moving on to our next topic, you know, so when you have a patient like this and, you know, I even want to know what kind of what you look for in, say, different scenarios. You got this 22-year-old semi-professional guy say that he's starting to notice that his shoulder's popping out a little bit more. He's having more anterior pain. Uh, say you have a young lady comes in as well. She can be in her 20s, and she say that, you know, she can pop her shoulder in, in and out, you know, no problem. But now, all of a sudden, it's starting to hurt a little bit more. And, you know, you get these two patients, but what are you thinking about on physical exam? And what, what certain things you're starting to look for, even as they're telling this story? Sure. So on physical exam, you know, first, I think we always kind of assess the shoulder, make sure kind of deltoids, deltoids functioning well. Anytime you have a previous shoulder instability event, you want to make sure their axillary nerves intact. So that's pretty easy. We can check sensation along the deltoid. We can, we can have them AB duck their arm against some resistance. Make sure you can see the deltoid heads fire. Uh, another thing we're looking at specifically in shoulder instability is that we're putting them in a position, especially if we're concerned about anterior shoulder instability, we want to put them in a position of um, that would provoke that instability event. And most commonly, that's the abducted, externally rotated position. So kind of the 90-90 position that you want to put them in. And what I typically do is I, I lay the patient down flat. I first have them slide over to their contralateral side, so the side that's not affected. And so that way the patient gets a little bit of comfort level in what you're doing, is not as scared, you know, kind of is not so tensed up. And so in this example, let's say it's, his, it's a right-hand dominant uh, athlete with the right shoulder instability, then go to their left shoulder, put them into that position, and see if they have any instability feelings. And then also do a relocation maneuver where you actually put your palm on the anterior side of the shoulder and push the humeral head back posteriorly and see if they have some uh, relief of their apprehension with that. So... That's what I do on the contralateral shoulder. Then I go to the actual affected shoulder and I do the same maneuver. So let's say we get them into the 90, 90 degree position. You start, you've moved very slowly. Make sure you don't pop this out because some of these patients can pop out in clinic. You want to move slowly. And once the patient says, Ooh, I don't know that don't go anymore, doc, that thing's going to pop out. Then what you do is apply a pretty good force posteriorly with your palm on the anterior shoulder and say, does that make it feel better? And a lot of times if they have true anterior instability, a lot of times these patients will say, yeah, that, that does. And then if you let go, then they'll all of a sudden say, ooh, now it's again the same feeling. So kind of the anterior apprehension test uh, is very useful with the relocation test. Yeah, and, and I think I, when I was reading, it was saying like that like maximizes the tension on, on one of the like inferior glenohumeral ligament. I always see a question on there. I was like, what band of the, of, the, um, of the ligaments is it? And it's always like the anterior band of the IGHL in these patients that have these um, like anterior shoulder instability. Um, but exactly. what are you doing like these rotator cuff tests as well? Are you doing like the slap test for O'Brien's? Like, are you doing these as well? Or are you kind of just focusing on your instability physical exam, um, maneuvers for these patients? Right, right. No, typically we'll do a full, full exam. So like some of the things you mentioned, O'Brien's looking for a potential slap tear. You know, a lot of patients will have a positive O'Brien's. How, what's the utility of an O'Brien's for detecting a slap tear? That's, that's questionable, right? I mean, a lot of people will have pain from O'Brien's test if they have a rotator cuff tear, if they got a slap tear, or if they have shoulder pain from other etiologies. So it's, it's a lot of times, sometimes it's more for test purposes and education. But I, I do routinely still perform the O'Brien's test just to document and compare it to the other side. 
with rotator cuff testing, I definitely perform that because you want to see if these patients are, and sometimes that becomes more important in older individuals who have, may have a shoulder dislocation event is they may tear their rotator cuff. So you want to, you want to be able to test their rotator cuff and test their infraspinatus, supraspinatus and subscapularis and kind of make sure those are all firing and with good strength. And so that, cause that can lead you down to the etiology of why they may have some shoulder instability perhaps. Right. And okay. Cody, uh, excuse me. He, he doesn't like to be called Cody on there. Uh, Wendell, uh, <laughs> Wendell, Wendell did mention, uh, you know, he just kind of mentioned like the inferior glenohumeral ligaments. And I think with shoulder pathology, I think the anatomy plays a huge role. And when you're doing these questions on ortho bullets or rest study or whatever it might be, you get a lot of questions just on the anatomy. Uh, can we touch on the just the relevant anatomy that you have to consider uh, when dealing with these uh, different shoulder pathologies? Sure. So first, when you're thinking about anatomy, you got to think about what, what keeps the shoulder in, right? I tell my residents that it's, it's amazing that the shoulder doesn't dislocate more because I think of it as a golf ball and a golf tee, right? That golf ball is about to flat, fall off at any given time if the wind blows right. So you got to think about what keeps it in. So we talk, usually when we talk about anatomy, we talk about all the things that will keep it in that are static versus dynamic. Mm -hmm. Static meaning not changing too much. Um, so we have the actual bony anatomy, the, the actual glenoid. Uh, we're talking about the actual bone, the contour of the humeral head sitting on the glenoid. We have the surrounding capsule. Um, and these capsules have various bands that come kind of off of it and blend into the capsule. One of the things you guys mentioned is the anterior band of the IGHL. And so that's one of the main restraints to anterior instability. Um, you also have the MGHL and the superior glenohumeral ligament also. And the way I kind of, I remember learning about this back in residency is that you, you just, if you're wearing a shirt and you put yourself in a position of 90, 90 versus 45 versus arm at the side, you kind of figure out what part of your shirt seems the tightest. And that gives you a hint of what's IGHL, what MGHL and what's superior glenohumeral ligament. And so you don't have to necessarily memorize it. It kind of makes sense, right? If you kind of position it, position your arm in space and look at that. So in addition to the capsule, we're talking about the labrum. The labrum deepens the socket of the glenoid and provides very good restraint for anterior instability. And then you go on to the uh, dynamic. So things that are changing, moving, um, reactive, such as your rotator cuff or your biceps tendon can help, help provide stability to your shoulder. Nice. I think that was great. So, you, we mentioned the, st the static stabilizers, like the ligaments. You mentioned our glenohumeral capsule and our different bands, so the superior, middle, and then our inferior um, bands um, for our glenohumeral ligaments. And then our inferior, we have that anterior and the posterior band as well. Now, um, a question I did have um, for, for these, for, for patients that have like the uh, ligamentous laxity, like the ones with Marfan's, how do you determine that out like do you use that the baton's uh baton's criteria like how do you how do you go about teasing out just ligamentous laxity versus shoulder instability right right and so with Biden's criteria we we sometimes do look at that you know with the can you touch your palms to the ground can you hyperextend your elbow can you touch your thumb to your forearm there's various you know, it's well spelled out criteria they give points to. And so sometimes I'll use that. And a lot of times though, the history will kind of give me an answer for if we're looking, if we're going down that road versus the traumatic anterior instability event, right? So, right. so someone, someone who just says, 
you know, I was sleeping in my shoulder dislocated or a very low demand event, something that you wouldn't expect your shoulder to come out. That, that kind of, you know, brings up a red flag. Is this, is this someone who's just lax and has general laxity throughout their ligaments? And so that's kind of when I used to pull out Biden's criteria for that. Mm. But if it's, if it's the, if it's the college football player who comes in and says, I dislocated my shoulder, got it popped back in by the trainer. Um, that person I'm, thinking less, you know, ligament is laxity in general, not, not as focused on Biden's criteria. That one's typically more cut and dry into your okay. instability from a traumatic episode. Okay. And, and so now we have like, we've, I guess, kind of figured out what anterior instability is. What are like some of the lesions that are associated with, with anterior instability? Like how do these, how does this occur? And like, what changes do we see you know, in the glenoid, or if we see any, any lesions in the humerus, I know there's like a, a lot of different eponyms for, um, for you know, things that may occur with anterior glenoid humeral instability. So, kind of, can you sure. take us through that? You know, the one of the most common common lesions you'll hear is the Bankart lesion, right? So, right. what does that refer to? Well, that's actually tearing of the anterior inferior labrum, and as we talked about, the anterior band of the IGHL. So when people talk about anterior instability, a lot of things I drive into our residence is it's actually anterior inferior instability. A lot of people focus on my shoulders coming out the front. It's coming out the front and in the inferior region. So anterior inferior is a great way to think about it, especially when you get into the realm of trying to reestablish good anatomy. So a bank heart lesion, again, is the tear of the labrum anterior inferiorly, kind of for, we're talking about the kind of three to five thirty, three to six o'clock region usually and the anterior band of the IGHL. Other things you can have, a lot, a lot of eponyms as you talked about is the GLAD lesion. We talk, that's when a part of the articular cartilage comes off. There's an ALPSA lesion where you can have a periosteal sleeve come off as a full layer there. And the reason that's important is because when you get in there, you're like looking, where's my labrum? Where do I fix it? And you have to actually develop the plane between the labrum and the glenoid neck and kind of peel it off and let it rise back up so you can anatomically repair that. Another one that's a classic test question is the haggle, the humeral avulsion, the glenohumeral ligament. Most, most commonly, you imprint this in your mind, you'll see a coronal image, an MRI arthrogram, and you'll see on the coronal images that you'll have this inferior pouch that looks humongous with a lesion of the, with a haggle lesion down at the bottom because you have contrast going down way further south than you're used to. And that's something that sometimes can be missed. Um, and a lot of times people will repair that open. And if that's missed, that puts you at much higher increased risk for a recurrence of your anterior instability. So that's going on. That's some of the common lesions we talk about on the labrum side of things um, and ligaments. You can also have, uh, in addition to a labral tear for the bankart lesion, you can actually have the bone can fracture off or come off with the labrum. And that's not exactly uncommon to have a bony bank cart lesion of some sort, um, especially if you have someone who's popping at the shoulder a lot. And so, you know, we can get a little bit later into the, the degree of bone loss, but the bony bank cart's important to understand. And then on the other side, we used to think about, you know, historically, we used to be so focused on glenoid bone loss, the bony bank cart lesion, how much bone loss is there on the glenoid? Well, people were somewhat neglecting the hill sex lesion. So what's a hill sex lesion? That's the, that's the impaction injury of the posterior suprahumeral head. And you can remember that is because that's the part of the humeral head that comes in touch or contact with the anterior glenoid. And that's a hill sacs lesion described by two radiologists um, back in, I believe, in the 50s. And um, 
that that's important because then we start talking about this is not a unipolar lesion. Unipolar would be if you're just describing one side of the equation with bony bank heart, for example, or glenoid bone loss. It's these are really bipolar lesions we should be thinking about, which means we're thinking about the bone loss on the glenoid and we're thinking about the bone loss on the on the actual humerus. Right. Okay. I, I think that was an excellent overview. I think we, we touched on the bank heart, um, on the bank heart lesions where that was kind of the evolution of the um, the glenohumeral ligaments. You spoke about the bony bank heart, the Alpsa lesions, uh, I think the haggle as well, which you said we could see on our coronal images of the MRI. Um, one thing that we did that you did uh, talk about was the uh, glenoid loss, and I think we can talk about that a little bit later when we talk about the operative uh, about the operative planning. Uh, Doctor Doctor Fitz, I think you had a you had a question. Yeah, I mean, even since we since we just kind of mentioned uh, about the heel sac lesion, can you mention the whole on track, off track, you know, theory that's that's in the literature as well? Sure, you know, I, I we've we've kind of published on this, and one of my mentors, JT Tokish, is one of the first to clinically validate the on track, off track um, concept. And so, what does that refer to? Well, normally your humeral head, there's an there's a track that it that it articulates with the glenoid. And we've figured this out by dynamic MRIs and it's about 83% of the inferior diameter of the glenoid. And so what we're doing with this equation, you know, of glenoid track is we're figuring out if the hill sacs lesion will engage when in taking into account the actual bone loss on the glenoid side. So if the actual hill sacs lesion measured from the insertion of the rotator cuff just medial to, all the way medially to the hill sacs uh, indention por portion. We want to see if that's bigger or smaller than the glenoid track. If that's bigger than the glenoid track, the hill sacs interval that is, then we know it's going to engage and that's an off-track lesion. If it's smaller than the glenoid track, then your lesion's contained. If it's contained, that means you're not at not such a high risk for coming into contact with engaging the actual hill sacs onto the anterior glenoid. So that's, that's an important concept, and that's really important because now we're talking about bipolar. Uh, con we're talking about a concept that addresses both the bone loss on the humeral head and the bone loss on the glenoid side. So, you know, what we generally thought of as big lesions, we can actually have two small lesions kind of match up correctly and cause significant instability that can potentially even fail after a routine arthroscopic bank cart repair. So just to... I guess go over that one more time. So we're saying the glenoid track. So this is when when your arm is is you know externally rotated and extended. Um, this is the contact or the area of contact between the glenoid and then the humeral head itself. And right. so that's that's important because if you have a hill sac lesion like on the on the humerus that that can play a part in the stability of the shoulder joint. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. A hill sex lesion can play an important part uh, to, to let you know if you're going to be on track, it's going to be a contained lesion or if you're going to be off track, a non-contained lesion that could determine kind of um, the stability of the shoulder joint. Okay. And I'm glad we spent so much time on that because I think, uh, you know, you know, and, and clinically, you spend a lot of time with physical exam and uh, there you can kind of almost suddenly get to a conclusion on what you feel like they may have, uh, what kind of lesion they may you may be dealing with. But 
once we get past this point, we have some ideas. We think it might be a heel sex, probably have a bony bank card and things like that. What imaging and, uh, you know, and even, even if you can touch on for the younger resident, some techniques that you might've used earlier in your career on just improving on reading those images to find out what kind of what's going on in the shoulder. Sure. You know, we, we, whenever we talk about imaging and ortho, it's always nailed into us that we got to talk about radiographs first, seeing imaging in the shoulder. And I think it's important to get, get a good series of radiographs for the unstable shoulder. Um, but typically, does it, does it really show us that much? Is, I mean, you often have to have a significant amount of bone loss or a significant amount of a bigger spig size hill sex lesion to really appreciate it. So what I use radiographs for primarily in the clinical setting is I want to make sure that someone, if, for example, if the, if the patient had a dislocated shoulder and the ER was reduced, I want to make sure that shoulder is still reduced or concentric with the glenoid. And so my go-to radiograph for shoulder instability is really the axillary view. That gives me the most, the best view of where the shoulder sits on the glenoid. Some people prefer a scap Y view. And a lot of times that can be operator dependent on how well of a scap Y view they get. But I think the axillary view is the most important. For test purposes, you can look at a West Point view that shows glenoid bone loss, or you can do a striker view, uh, which can show a hill sax lesion. I don't typically use those in clinical setting, but they're important to know for test reasons of what you may be looking for in those cases. And so that's kind of the plain radiographs. It's pretty simple in the, in the ER, if you're ever reducing a shoulder and the patient can't tolerate an axillary view or the radiologist, or the radiology tech says, we can't get an axillary view, this patient's in too much discomfort or we're afraid it's gonna pop back out. Another view to, to put in your armatarium is the Valpo view. That's a great view where the patient can actually just sit there and lean back about 20, 30 degrees. Um, and you can shoot an x-ray down the shoulder and you can actually get a pretty good view of the glenohumeral joint that way and see if you're reduced or not. So that's a pretty useful view in the ER setting, especially if you're not sure if something's reduced. Um, moving on in the clinical setting though, you know, my go-to view for looking at shoulder instability is typically the MRI and the MRI gives us a lot of information. What we're looking on the MRI is often we go to the axillary view. We look for labral pathology, we look at that labrum's attached or not attached and see how much of the labrum's, in, labrum's involved. We'll look at, we'll we usually do an arthrogram to see if contrast has gotten in between the labrum and the glenoid. We'll also take a look at the coronal images as we talked about, make sure we don't miss a haggle lesion. And oftentimes we'll obviously look for, make sure the rotator cuff's intact and other things. Um, you can measure bone loss on the MRI on a sagittal view. It's been validated. Um, sometimes it can be difficult, but it, it is validated and you can measure it on a MRI. A lot of people will describe though, the utility of a CT scan. Sometimes it's easier to measure bone loss and even sometimes a 3d CT scan may be useful for looking at the, looking at the bone loss and the pattern of bone loss. Just for my own, just for my own personal knowledge, when you measure it, do you do the, uh, like the clock, like you, not the clock, but you, you find the center of the glenoid and make a circle and then. It's kind of an equation from like the center of that to the posterior aspect of the glenoid compared to the ratio to the anterior. I'm not sure if you know what I'm talking about. Um, but is that how you yeah, measure yours? Yeah, when you measure bone loss, is that what you're referring to? For, right. Yeah. yeah, so what I'll typically do is the perfect circle method. And so kind of what you're referring to is what the, the, the glenoid's typically kind of a pear-shaped, you know, so we'll, the yeah. inferior half of the glenoid should match up pretty nicely with a circle. 
So what we'll do is in most pack systems, you can draw a perfect circle. And what you want to do is match it up. So if you're pretty sure you're looking at anterior instability, you match up that curvature of the circle with the inferior posterior glenoid. And then you'll, once you match that up and configure it, you'll kind of see on the anterior side, does it perfectly lay in line with the actual glenoid you're seeing on the MRI? Or is there a gap between your circle and the actual glenoid seen on the MRI sagittal view? Mm, okay. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. Um, I guess just moving on. So say, you know, we had this patient, um, you know, they've, they've came in, you know, our sort of baseball player, they had this shoulder dislocation. We got an MRI. What are some of the, I guess, things that we need to consider uh, when making a decision of like, you know, are we going to go in the operative route, non-operative route? What are some things that kind of drive your choice to how you're going to treat these patients? Right. So it's, it's all about demand and risk factors, right? So we got, we got to, we got to look at, is this shoulder going to come back out or not? So typically just as a general uh, kind of mentality is I'm pretty aggressive on shoulder instability in youth athletes, especially contact athletes. I think it's, it's been proven to decrease the risk of recurrence and it's cost effective method of addressing shoulder instability after the first time of an instability event. This, this gentleman here, specifically in this case scenario, may have had a dislocation event in the past, perhaps. So we, but it seems to be symptomatic now. So what we look at is, we look at what their demands are. You know, are they, are they, they're still playing sports. They're not playing sports, a contact sport, per se, uh, in this clinical setting of maybe football, for example. But they're still playing kind of a high-level sport. Um, and then we're looking at their exam. So let's, for let's for example say that they do have instability when they come into the abducted externally rotated position that is causing them some significant instability. And if it's a, if it's a baseball player, they can often get to that position, whether they're fielding a, you know, pop fly, um, whether chasing down a ball or something or um, getting in other um, type of scenarios where they may actually lead to instability. So if their exam is consistent with that, and uh, either you know youth athlete or overall younger athlete, um, oftentimes a male is a risk factor for recurrence. Uh, we got to start looking at what are what are some other things we're seeing. So this gentleman, I would probably proceed with getting some advanced imaging, including an MR arthrogram, to take a look at see if his labrum is torn in the anterior inferior region. See see if he has any bone loss, perhaps, and see if he has any type of hill sacs lesion. And this can also help us. Um, with our treatment plan and um, if we do go to the route of surgical treatment preoperative planning to determine if this is an on-track or off-track lesion right and so say you know say we got an you know MRI it showed a glenoid defect um, that was to say like 30% of the glenoid um, where I guess can you take us through the surgical i guess non-operative indications and then the surgical management so how would you like what are the options for patients with anterior shoulder instability and what like has you go towards one option versus another right so let's say what, what are some what are some people who would be good for non-operative treatment those with minimal bone loss on the glenoid and those with small to no hill sacs lesion older adults um, being non-youth, non-youth athletes, people who do not engage in contact sports. Um, those are, those are people who would be good candidates for non-operative treatment, right? Because 
they're at lower risk for recurrence. A one-time dislocation event does put you at higher risk for arthritis, but if you're not going to have another event, potentially, if this was a, if this was something that was caused by a freak accident, not something that you routinely expose yourself to, then those are good candidates for potential non-operative treatment. On the flip side, what are, what are the typical indications for operative treatment? Are those that play youth sports, especially contact sports, those that are male, and those that have any kind of significant bone loss on the either glenoid or um, humeral side, and those are, those are good candidates for operative treatment, and we can actually change the natural history of that shoulder by um, restoring stability early on. Okay. And, yeah, go ahead, Fitz. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, and once you decide to go down that path of operative treatment, and, and this is where things probably going to get a little uh, a bit muddy because I know there's so many different uh, techniques that you can do depending on what, what you kind of find and what the pathology is. But let's say, what are your common procedures that you do for some of the common causes of uh, anterior instability of the shoulder? Sure. You know, the most common procedure that we do for anterior instability is an arthroscopic bank heart repair. And that's, that's one of the most commonly performed procedures across the U.S. for shoulder instability. And what does that involve? Well, that involves going in with an uh, with a scope and, you know, freeing up the actual labrum, kind of developing a plane between the glenoid and the labrum, elevating up the labrum in an appropriate manner. And then we usually uh, pass some type of lasso or something to place a stitch through the capsule IGHL and labrum itself. And we pull it from a south to north direction. That's, that's important. You're not going from just east to west. You're actually going from east to west and pulling it from a south to north, right? Because this is anterior inferior instability and you want to, you want to pull this capsule uh, labrum tissue up north to kind of tighten up the shoulder. And so that's, that's one of the most common things we'll do is an arthroscopic bank heart repair. Now, in addition to the arthroscopic bank heart repair, more and more people are talking about adding on a remplissage procedure. So what is, what is remplissage? So I believe it's French for fill in or fill in that defect is what we're mm -hmm. doing. And what are we filling in and where are we filling in? And well, we talked about the hill sex, right? That posterior superior impaction injury of the humeral head. I mean, when you get in there with a scope, that's pretty obvious when you're looking up at that area. Is that something looks like a Pac-Man bite um, out of the humeral head? And what you want to do is that area can actually engage in the uh, anterior glenoid as we drift. So what we want to do is we want to fill in that defect with something. And what do we have right there that we can fill it in with? Well, we got the infraspinatus and we got the capsule, posterior capsule, we can fill it in with. So oftentimes we'll put in suture anchors there and tie down the capsule and infraspinatus to what we call a remplissage. And we add that to our bank card. And why do we add that? Well, you know, the main thing it seems to do is it seems to pull the humeral head actually back. So by pulling it back, you're actually kind of centralizing that humeral head so it doesn't have a chance to sit on the anterior glenoid and thus engage. So you're pulling back the humeral head back into a central location and thus that, that hill sacs lesion will never engage again with the anterior glenoid. So that's something that we're adding on. We're seeing more and more utility. I'm getting more and more aggressive about adding on a remplissage procedure. Next, we talk about the open bank heart. You know, it's funny, actually, not, not many people are performing open bank hearts with capsular shifts anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm doing a few every now and then, but I'm not that often. Yep. This is kind of the middle ground between an arthroscopic versus a bony augmentation procedure, but uh, literally involves an open procedure where you can either split the subscap or take the subscapularis down 
and you can actually shift the capsule and tighten it up. And that's an important technique to keep in our toolbox also. Next, what we're talking about in general is a bony transfer, whether you do that with a Latterge type procedure where you use the coracoid itself, or whether you do that with a iliac crest, or perhaps an allograft, which is such as a distal tibia, to augment the anterior glenoid. These procedures are often used when you have more significant bone loss on the anterior glenoid, or when you perhaps have an off-track lesion. So maybe not as much of a bone loss on the glenoid, but the combined glenoid bone loss plus the hill sacs may lead you to an off-track lesion. And that's what these are important for. You're basically compensating for the bone loss. You're, you're enlarging the glenoid track to allow the shoulder to sit before it even comes close to dislocating. Um, each of these procedures will have their risk and benefits of doing them. Uh, Latterge is something the French uh, use very aggressively and routinely in their practice. They're very good at it. But with a Latterge, it's, it's, it's something that can um, give you great shoulder instability through, through various methods. The biggest thing is it increases the glenoid tract with the bone. The sling effect that people talk about with the conjoined tendon sitting on top of the subscapularis and tightening as you bring your arm up into abduction and external rotation. You know, for test purposes, you should remember the sling effect. But if you ask, if you ask people what they think about it, there's, there's, I think there's been two studies or three studies perhaps kind of questioning the sling effect. If it's actually even useful, does it work or not? We're not actually sure if the sling effect is useful or has any significant utility. And then the CA ligament is important for capsule reconstruction. Um, but those are the three things to remember for Latter J is the, the bone, the bony augmentation, the sling effect, and the capsule um, repair or reconstruction with the CA ligament. And that's the Latter J procedure. Um, the other procedures we talked about with the bone augmentation in the front, those are important too, but you don't you don't incorporate typically the sling effect and typically not the capsule reconstruction. You typically just augment the front with the bone, your choice of which bone, where you get that bone from. So, so for, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. So the latter J is we're taking the distal tip of the coracoid process along with this detachment of conjoined tendons and we're putting it um, to augment, you know, the anterior glenoid. So that like, that's what that procedure is versus another procedure um, where you just get a piece of, where you, uh, I guess I'm trying to see what you mean by the, the different, um, the different open options as far right. as the bony augmentation. With bony augmentation, you can actually get bone from the iliac crest also. The tricortical mm -hmm. iliac crest graft is well described. Um, and you can actually get bone from there, get a significant amount of bone there to augment your anterior glenoid. And then more, more uh, recently uh, has grown in popularity the distal tibia allograft, uh, often uh, espoused by a preventure and his team is the distal tibia allograft ha has been shown to have good contour with the actual, with the actual humeral head. It fits nicely. And so that's another thing is you basically order an allograft, you cut it on the back table to uh, get to the dimensions that you wish to augment the anterior glenoid and put it on. And that saves you a lot from uh, harvest site morbidity from the patient itself. And um, also kind of obviates the need for taking the coracoid because with the coracoid, um, taking that, you can have significant issues. It's most commonly nerve-type issues. One of the nerve issues you can have is a musculocutaneous nerve issue. Because um, as we know, it runs right through that conjoint tendon area. And oftentimes when you take a ladder J, you make things non-anatomic. And you can put nerves on stretch, which can lead to serious complications.
Right, right. Okay. Um, no, I think that was great. Is there, I mean, other things, you know, that, that I looked and saw, I heard there's, you know, other things such as like Humorhead allographs and resurfacing other Humorhead for, uh, I guess, you know, for these types of procedures, we'd be thinking of patients that have large defects that we, um, that we would, you know, want to address during this procedure, I guess, for more chronic, um, for more chronic shoulder instability. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah, I think that was a great, I think this was a great talk. Um, I think this gave a great overview of um, anterior shoulder instability as far as, you know, how to work it up, how to treat it. Um, and you know, and just so really for, for imaging as well. I was going to say also, what about, you know, some of your post-op management too? Because I know, you know, with some of the, the shoulder uh, treatments, the fact that you're dealing with athletes a lot, Kind of what what is your your method for that as far as post op? How soon you want to get these guys moving and things like that? Sure. So you know that's a good question. The the regimen after let's let's take the arthroscopic bank cart for example. You know there was a study out of I believe it was Sports Health about the the physical therapy rehab protocols after an arthroscopic bank cart. They took they looked at various academic institutions and looked at their protocols, and they were all over the place. How how quickly people get moving. And there's not really good evidence-based stuff behind the protocols and how quickly we can move them without, you know, sacrificing or putting too much tension on our repair. The, I think the most important concept to remember in these is I think you can move them um, gently early on. Um, I typically have my patients wear a sling for about for somewhere between four and six weeks and you can move them. But the, the position you want to avoid is the position, the provocative position of anterior instability. So that's the throwing position or the abducted externally rotated position. That's my mo that's my biggest thing is to keep them out of that position, thus taking off the stress on a repair of the anterior inferior glenoid. So that's 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 a very important concept of what position to avoid after repair during the rehab time. And another thing that's important is when do you when do you let contact athletes get back to sport? There's been a few studies on this, and we've we've kind of seen that if we wait a little bit longer till about six months till they get back to contact, it seems like the the healing, the process that takes place of the labrum and so forth, they have a little bit less recurrence if we're waiting to the six month mark rather than uh, letting them go a little bit too early to contact sports. So in, in the rehab, it's all over the place and there's no good science behind exactly what to do. But I think two take home concepts are avoiding the abducted externally rotated position and also for our contact athletes, limiting them from contact until they get out to about the six month mark or so to limit our recurrence and failure. Okay. And there it is. I think this was another classic hit. I think it's going to do really well, Dr. Mamaya. Appreciate you coming on to the show. Uh, before we let our guests go, we usually ask them, is there any, you know, is it social media or a website or email or anything like that, that our listeners could reach out to you if they would like to? Yeah, of course. You know, uh, I'm part of the younger generation. And at least I like to think of <laughs> being part of the younger generation. So, I'm on Twitter, so you can hit me up at Amith Mamaya MD um, on Twitter. Um, feel free to email me personally. I'm, I'm happy to answer questions and engage with the residents. My email address is amomaya at uabmc.edu. And if you want to visit my website, uh, it's mamayamd.com. So again, that's m-o-m-a-y-a-m-d.com. But, um, you know, I appreciate, appreciate you guys putting this together. I, I honestly, I wish I had a podcast like this when I was a resident. I think you guys are providing valuable information and 
in a modern fashion, right? I mean, we know orthopedic, there's this running joke, how do you hide a $100 bill from an orthopedic surgeon, you put it in a textbook, right? Well, oh, <laughs> yeah. this is the modern way to uh, disseminate information is to get it on the go, to have it while we're working out at the gym or we're driving into work. So, you know, kudos to you guys for putting this together. I think, I think this is excellent work. All right. And thank you, Dr. Yeah, thank you. And thank you everyone for listening to our show. Uh, we'll see you guys back next week. We hope you guys enjoy listening to that episode on anterior shoulder instability with Dr. Mamaya. He did an excellent job talking about everything about the shoulder. We talked about physical exams. We talked about um, operative management. We even spoke about a lot of things which are sometimes a little bit harder to conceptualize or grab over a over a podcast, over this audio. So if you go over to our show notes at nailedortho.com, you can look in the description of this podcast and you can get the link to our show notes. That will give you a little bit more insight as well as you can see some of the, um, some of the pictures as well as some of the accompanying text. So don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes if you have not. And if you are an excellent fan and go above and beyond, Tell this to a friend. All right, guys. Until next episode.